Christ Community Church is called by the God of all grace for the transforming of life in Middle Tennessee, spiritually, socially, and culturally. Through the power of the gospel, from Franklin to the nations of the world, all for the glory of God. For more information, visit ChristCommunity.org. Good morning. Glad to be here. This morning we're going to look at Ecclesiastes, verse one, and then we're going to—I mean, chapter one—and then we're going to also look at uh, the very end, just four verses, kind of to bookends. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is a fascinating, mysterious uh, book in the Old Testament. Uh, we probably think it was written by Solomon, uh, the son of David, who was also king and also very wise. The nations came to Solomon because he was so wise, and he was wealthy, and here he is at the end of his life reflecting on what it means to live in this world. So he has a wonderful way of saying it. So let's look at Ecclesiastes, 12, Ecclesiastes 1 and Ecclesiastes 12. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask for your grace and your mercy that is eternal and that you, would, that you would fill me as I seek to serve these people and that we would all see Jesus and have faith in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We live in a ruined paradise. A ruined paradise. It's paradise. Uh, last Sunday, I was sitting on my front steps of my house, and I was eating a perfect peach. You know, like it was going to be, it would, it would be probably like a terrible peach in 30 minutes. It was that perfect. <laughs> I was eating it, and you know, and you have to, you have to have a, uh, you got to have a napkin or something. You're going to make a mess of yourself, right? And eating that peach, is glorious, that's paradise. It's also ruined. It's a world where my brother-in-law at 25 got a glioblastoma, that's a brain tumor, the worst kind you can get. And they found it in October of 2006 and he died in April of 2007. 2007. I watched him become an old man at 25. And I watched the family cave. So it's a world of peaches and brain tumors. But maybe my favorite um, description of this ruined paradise is one time I was running in Memphis, jogging, jogging. Um, and early in the morning, it was May. Yeah, if you've, if you've been around me, you know this illustration. It was early in the morning and the dew was still on the grass. It's humid, and you know, in, 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 in Memphis, 
and I was running, and I could smell the honeysuckle. And you know, sometimes it's so, you, you're almost, it's almost intoxicating. It's, it just hits you, and I'm just smelling the honeysuckle and just thinking, this is so wonderful. This verdant, deep southern paradise I'm in, ravaged Eden. But about half a mile down the road, I couldn't smell the honeysuckle anymore. Just whiffs of it, but I smell raw sewage then. Gross. It's a world of honeysuckle and sewage. The book of Ecclesiastes is about how do we make sense of living in a world that should work but doesn't. We look at it and they have these moments that are sublime. And right next to the moments that are sublime are sheer terror. And everyone that has ever lived is trying to make sense of that. And that's what this wise old preacher Solomon is looking at. So we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at the ruined paradise. Second, we're going to look at the broken ways we respond to the ruined paradise. So not only is the world broken, the way we respond to it is broken. And then third, what is the faithful way to respond? Ruined paradise, broken ways, faithful ways. Ruined paradise, broken, faithful, let's go. Ruined paradise, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This word is translated here in verse 2 and verse 8 of chapter 12. It's, It's a Hebrew word, hebel. It's the same word for the name Abel, Cain and Abel. It doesn't mean meaningless. It doesn't mean vanity in the way we think of vanity. It's actually, that's not a great translation. The real Hebrew word does not mean meaningless or pointless. What it means is vapor, vapor, mist, ephemeral, short, fleeting, transitory. And when he says vanity of vanities or hebel of hebel, he means vapor of vapors. Everything is vapor. It's really a way of getting your point across in Hebrew poetry when you repeat things, holy of holies. He's setting the frame. This is what he's saying. Everything in this world is shot through with vapor. All is vapor. That means every Every single facet of our existence is ephemeral and fleeting. Every part of our existence, Paul says it in Romans 8.20, everything in creation has been subjected to futility. And what's fascinating is this word, it seems like he's even looking back because this Greek word is the word they use to translate the Hebrew word hebel, futility, subjected to vapor, the entire creation has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's mysterious. The great story is a story where God himself subjected the entire creation to futility. He allowed it to become vaporous because only good stories are broken stories. How boring is a story where nothing bad happens. 
Remember R.C. Sproul years ago said, you will never see a movie about a bank when, when someone goes in to make an investment in a bank. Only bank robberies. <laughs> and you and I, subjected to futility, every one of us are carrying around bank robbery, a brokenness. Everything in this world, that means this church and the people in this church. That means evangelicalism. That means pastors and elders and deacons and moms and dads and children, every single one of us, vapor of vapors, ruin paradise. There's some things about us that are really peachy, right? And there's some things about us that are cancerous. That's what Solomon's saying. This is really in some ways like a survey of the book. But doesn't it explain so much? You know, this is, the tr this is what's called a biblical world and life view. That's why the happy ever after, we know it's not true. Right? We know that, but we want it. You always want to see the guy get the girl at the end and walk off into the sunset. But now we go like, yeah, yeah, but what happens after the sun sets? That's why I wonder if one of the reasons we like uh, on social media and on television, why we like to kind of see behind the story. And back in the 90s, uh, there was a show called Behind the Music. And they would take like rock bands, like Motley Crue or different rock bands or, you know, different artists. And they were like, they were the biggest star ever. And then they spiraled down into drugs and alcohol, right? But we can't resist it, can we? Because we know the behind the music in us. It's why there is no happy ever after in this world. One of the most shocking examples I think I've seen of this is the story of Schindler from Schindler's List. Y'all remember this movie, great movie, Schindler's List. There's only chock full of 90s references. I apologize. I'm a Gen X. Great movie. He saves the life of hundreds and hundreds of Jewish people that would have gone to internment concentration camps and been killed and risk his own life, this business owner, and risk his own life and, and does everything. Do you know the, mm, do you know the behind the story after Schindler, Schindler's List? They didn't do this like part two. He abandons his wife, becomes a womanizer, drank too much, lost all his money, and for a glass of schnapps, Pawn the commemorative gold ring fashioned from the false teeth of those he rescued. Wah, wah. <laughs> Officially bummed out. But here's the point. It is why there is a level, profound level of deep dissatisfaction in everything we do. There's a level of deep satisfaction. It's when that trip that you go on that you've been planning and you've been looking forward to and you have everything the way you want it to be and then you get to that trip, oh, and it is not what you wanted it to be. 
It's when you raise your kids and you pour into them and you pray for them and you do all of these things and you give and you give and you give and they want nothing to do with the things that you value and care about. It's when you pray and you pray and you work and you work and you try and you don't get the success that you want but you see someone who hasn't done anything for it, get it. There's the eternal why hanging over everything, as one writer puts it. Why? Why does God allow war? Why does this person die and not this other person? Why? Where is the sense in it all? And here's why I call this the blues of the Bible. This is honest. This book, Ecclesiastes, is not some rose-colored glasses. And if anyone says that Christianity is just like, oh, you're just like the opiate of the masses, you've heard that said, or oh, you just want to feel good about your life, you've never read Ecclesiastes then. Before you say that, read this book. Because you look at Solomon and say like, yeah, I've done all the things that I thought would fix me, and they have not fixed me at all. And actually, they've made me more miserable. So, which takes us to our second point our broken responses. So that's the way the world is. It's ruined paradise. It's peaches and, and tumors. What are our broken responses to it? Now, a lot of commentators and scholars, they want to let Solomon off the hook here. They're saying, he doesn't really feel this way. He's just acting like he doesn't believe in God. That is the lamest cop-out, scholar cop-out. Like, you know, it's true for non-Christians that they would see everything as vapor, but for us, we believe and we have this secret and so everything makes sense. Now, I do believe that Christians have the profound reason of hope. We'll get to that. But life doesn't work for Christians either. Doesn't work. In fact, having been in campus ministry, been in ministry for 20 years, there is a form of Christian triumphalism that says if you believe the right things, and you do the right things, and you say the right things, and you can get your family, and you have this kind of checklist, that not a real checklist, but a real checklist, that somehow you won't have to face all the suffering that all these other people out there do. Y'all, I will tell you that, that triumphalism is why the church is being gutted right now. COVID killed that. Our political landscape killed that. Our, our, uh, uh, all the scandals in the church, killed that no 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 he's looking at it right in the eyeballs and he's he tries all these different things Solomon tries all these different things to see that they work he tries to get leverage over what he can't control one of the things he does is he tries it to, to he tries wine and feasting he does. He goes through it. Go, go back and read this book. He says, I give myself over to wine, to the best of wine. I give myself over to, to meals and to parties. I give myself over to pleasure and uh, sexual uh, uh, pursuit. And he says, it's all vapor. Like those things aren't bad. But he says, those things, they don't fix the reality of the honeysuckle and sewage. It's an escape. It's like Peter Pan. You know, Peter Pan's actually a tragedy. It's someone that refuses to grow up. 
I mean, this is why we escape into our phones, why we want to be constantly distracted. It's more than just like it makes us feel good. The reason we're addicted to it is that we don't want to face the reality that we're going to die and that we don't have any control over it. And so we just shove that puppy way down there, right? Escape. The second one he tries is fight. You fight against it. Success. Work. I'll be successful. I will achieve. And y'all, Solomon built more, owned more, and was more successful than anyone you know times 100. He was the richest man in the ancient world. He was a genius, and he was successful, and he did it all. And he got to it, and he says, as uh, Johnny Cash covering the, the old Nine Inch Nails song, you can have it all, my empire of dirt. The busyness, the frenetic busyness, because we don't want to slow down long enough to face the emptiness inside of us, and so we fight against it. And we live with this kind of one of these days mentality. Come on, some of y'all, middle, middle age, middle life crisis, you're looking at him right here, right? And I get to our middle of our life and I'm looking out there and we think, man, when I get this, I'll feel differently. When I get this, I'll have peace. When I get this, I'll have security. And you can fill in the blanks of whatever that stuff is, but you get it and it doesn't do it. And that's, Paul, that's, that's Solomon saying, vanity of vanities, vapor of vapors, hevel of hevel, everything's chock full of it. And being successful doesn't fix what's broken inside of you or what's broken in your world. Another option is just to freeze. We give up. We're paralyzed. We get stuck in second gear. We become lazy or slothful. It's like one of the funny examples of this is, yeah, I've got, sorry, Seinfeld. This is my third 90s reference. I apologize. Don't, don't ask me back, okay? <laughs> Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld. Hey, kids, that's a show on TV that was funny um, before Friends. <laughs> Jerry, looked at, Jerry looked at George Costanza. George Costanza is the classic example of someone who just freezes. And he does all of these examples, right, against a world that's broken. At one point, he, he said that the way he's going to feel good about life is he could be draped in velvet and eating a block of cheese the size of a car battery. <laughs> but at one point, he, he, just, he just gives up and he just says, I'm just going to wear sweatpants. And so the whole episode, he's wearing sweatpants. And Jerry says, again with the sweatpants? And George says, what? I'm comfortable. Jerry says, do you know the message that you're sending to the world with the sweatpants? I give up. I can't compete in normal society, so I might as, I'm miserable, so I might as well be comfortable. <laughs> That's funny, but think about that for a second. I'm miserable, so I might as well be comfortable. What are your broken ways of dealing with the ruined paradise? You are doing something with it. Just think about it, reflect on it. 
Are you more likely to fight against it? Are you more likely to freeze against it? Are you more likely to want to escape? Or do you do all the above? I kind of probably do all the above or a mixture, but like, what is your broken response? Because the broken responses to a ruined paradise started in the Garden of Eden. The very first broken response is Adam and Eve sinned and they hid themselves. And you know what they did? They were naked and ashamed. And so what they did is they sewed fig leaves for themselves to hide. That is the very first pair of sweatpants ever. (laughs) Their misery made them want to hide and be comforted. So here's what Solomon says in verse 14. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, all is vapor, a striving after the wind. That literal translation is striving after the wind. He says, all our attempts to have leverage over a world we can't control of honeysuckle and sewage is like shepherding the wind. Isn't that, that's some good poetry. Shepherding the wind. Now think of a shepherd for a second, what he does with sheep, dumb sheep, and he's trying to corral them, right? He's trying to get them to follow. Now imagine doing that with wind. It's absurd. But don't you think of your life just for a minute. Think of all the different things that you've done I've used ministry, preaching ministry, as a way to try to get leverage. This is what's going to fulfill me. And y'all, it doesn't. And if ministry, like the most kind of Jesus-y thing you could do, doesn't make you feel more secure, then whatever you're doing doesn't work at all either. So how are we supposed to live now? Final point. Have you ever heard the illustration that life is a quilt? About the quilt? It's a beautiful illustration. Because I have a lot of quilts. I grew up with a lot of quilts. And so there's beautiful patchwork and all these different colors. But on the other side, it's ugly. Right? And you have all of the different threads. And it's not pretty at all. You just have threads and it's, it's gross. And it just doesn't look interesting. But you turn it over and it's beautiful. I've heard that illustration so many times. I've probably used it in sermons. Life is like a quilt and you can't. Okay. But here's the thing. In this life, all we get is the ugly side. That means Roman 8.28 is true. God works everything, everything together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Everything. So all is vanity, all is vapor, all is broken, but he's going to, there is a plan. But here's the thing, we don't get to see it. That's what Solomon's saying. Vanity of vanity, you don't get to see it. And so we have to trust God in the mist. Listen to what he says. Chapter 3, verse 11. God has made everything appropriate in its time. He's also set eternity in their heart so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even into the end. He has set eternity in our heart. In other words, there is an insatiable longing and desire to see how the story ends. There is a longing and aching, Paul calls it a groaning, that the entire creation, everything in creation is groaning and longing for the end of the tumors and the end of the sewage. And that's good But now, life is about longing in the brokenness, in the ruined paradise. So what does that practically look look like? 
Solomon says the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of mankind. God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. He also says in chapter two, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that this is from the hand of God. Or again, in chapter 3, I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that everyone eats and drinks and sees good in all his labor is a gift of God. Here's what he's saying. Fear God and be small. Be human. The only way to live is to fear God. That means a reverential trust. Believe in him. It's the Old Testament way of believing in the great I am. Trusting him. Letting God be God and you be human. And the word human comes to the root word that we have humus, which means earth. It's the same root word for humility. To be human is to be dust, not God. Dust. We're turning to dust. And it means to embrace your dustness. And that's good. Being human is good, you know that. You being finite is good. At the end of one of C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogies, the God character named Malachandra looks at Ransom, the, the main character. And listen to what he says. Be comforted in your smallness, small one. He lays no merit on you. Receive and be glad. Be comforted in your smallness, small one. How do, I, how, do you, how do y'all feel when I say be comforted in your smallness, small one? That faithfulness is for you to embrace your limitations and your finitude that you're a human being that's going to die. To fear God and be human. That it's, in the words of Alan Jackson, it's all right to be little bitty. Fourth 90s reference. <laughs> this is my last sermon ever. I enjoyed it, guys. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's all right to be little bitty. Little hometown, big old city. Might as, well sh- might as well share. Might as well smile. Life goes on for a little bitty while. To be small and enjoy the good gifts. To be, to be small, to be human, and to enjoy the peaches when they're ripe. To simplify our lives. You see, this is a way of helping us discern what to leave in and what to leave out. That we begin to thank God for the little things in our life, to seeing those come from the hand of God for our food, for our homes, for our jobs, for our families, and for our friends. They are from him, and his command is to enjoy them and give thanks to him because we do not know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow, and that's it. And our work, it's a gift, but it will not fix you. It's not designed to. It's never going to heal your wounds. So we can work without needing to fix us. See, you and I need to be freed from our work in order to work. See, our work, our success, our stuff, our identities, our roles, our titles, all of those things, they're too important to us. 
And Solomon would just take us by the shoulders and say, vapor of vapors, all is vapor. Go do your work and go home, eat your meal, love your family and go to bed. It's a command to me. And as I'm saying this, like, you know, you're certain sermons that you preach and you're like, yeah, they really need to hear this. I need to hear this so much. Fuck me, if my family could come up here, they'd be rolling their eyes. Think about it, we always want to be somewhere else, don't we, some of us? Someone out there is getting what I want, and that is vapor. Actually, it's vapor, and Solomon would call it foolish. It's living like there is no God who has a plan for you. But you know what it finally brings us to? The surrender to the King, Jesus. See, we get to read the book of Ecclesiastes through the lens of Christ. And Solomon only saw this shadowy figure. Jesus came here, God and man, and he became vapor with us. He entered into the mist. He came and invaded the ruined paradise. And that was the plan of all along to come to the ruined paradise and to die and to take all the suffering of humanity and his heart was broken and he felt all the fullness of his humanity he lived here in the beautiful ruined paradise and the whole time he knew why he came he knew why he came he came to take the vapor away he came to make things solid again And so he says in Revelations 21, I am making all things, everything that's been subjected to vapor and futility, I'm making all things new. And that word new doesn't mean brand new in the way that like something wasn't there, something novel. It means to, it means renovation. It means that my brother-in-law, that he will live forever and we will never again have to fear a brain tumor. We will never, ever have to, again, fear the future. We will be able to live and to love freely without any of the insecurity and the shame that we bring to our relationships. All things new, all things new. And here's the thing. As we live in the mist, there is, a, there is this refrain for us. Yes, we die. He is making all things new. Yes, we worry. He's making all things new. Yes, we fail. He's making all things new. He came to take away the confusion, and he's going to make all things new. Now, it doesn't get any bigger than that, does it? Life doesn't get... That that is the best news you have ever heard. And some of you here today, I wonder if you're trying to decide whether you're going to believe any of this stuff. You're trying to make your mind up. But what, what am I going to do with Jesus? What am I going to do with Christianity? Or I'm, I'm going to check out. I, I'm not even interested in being part of this. And I just want to give to you. I want to, I, want to, I, want to, I want to ask you. All your attempts to fix yourself, and especially religion, what if it's true? What if Jesus really did it? 
compare that hope to all your attempts to save yourself. Is God pursuing you? Yeah. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the privilege of being able to preach here and thank you for these people. And I ask, Lord, that you would give us all faith wherever we need it. We're so messed up and you don't hold that against us. Lord, I pray that you give us faith where there's doubt or even just unbelief. Lord, I pray that you would give us um, some, some clear eyes to see ourselves and to see you. And, and Jesus, you long to do that. And we really are ready for you to come back. We long for it. And that's a good thing to long for. We thank you, Jesus, and love you. Amen.